For the past few weeks, our colleague Sarah Randazzo has been getting up very early to join a long line outside a courthouse in San Jose, California. It's Tuesday morning and the sun hasn't risen yet. It's also raining and there's already 30 people here waiting to get into the Elizabeth Holmes trial. Sarah's been reporting on the trial of Elizabeth Holmes, the former CEO of Theranos. Holmes promised to revolutionize healthcare with a new blood testing technology that could detect multiple health conditions with just a few drops of blood. That pledge made Theranos one of the most exciting startups in Silicon Valley. But the technology didn't work as promised. And now Holmes is on trial, charged with 11 counts of fraud and conspiracy. And three weeks ago, she made a surprising move. She took the stand herself. It's a very risky move, and, you know, most people didn't think she would take the stand. But, you know, this case has been unpredictable, and Elizabeth Holmes is somewhat unpredictable, and so she did it. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Ryan Knudsen. It's Wednesday, December 8th. Coming up on the show, the prosecution and the defense of Elizabeth Holmes. This episode is brought to you by ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. Enter ServiceNow. It puts AI to work for people, for employees, for developers, and even your customers, removing frustration and supercharging productivity. On our intelligent platform, AI isn't just a promise. It's happening today. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Tap the banner to learn more or visit servicenow.com slash AI for people. Opening arguments in Elizabeth Holmes' trial began on September 8th. There was no recording allowed, but Sarah was one of two Wall Street Journal reporters in the courtroom. The prosecution went first. They were seeking to prove that Holmes knowingly lied to investors and patients about what Theranos was capable of doing. So they really set out to show that she was an entrepreneur who, you know, had these goals to create this new technology, but that she knew all along that they weren't delivering on those promises. She knew that the projections they were giving to investors saying that they would have a billion in revenue weren't true. She knew the science didn't work, but yet she barreled forward to get her Theranos devices into Walgreens pharmacies and to get business deals done and to get investors giving them hundreds of millions of dollars. So essentially what it comes down to is that they accused her of lying to investors and patients about Theranos' technology. Which is a crime? It is when you put it in the guise of wire fraud, which essentially means sending communications across state lines based on fraudulent actions. So, you know, lying itself is not a crime, but lying to induce someone to give you $100 million is a crime. To make their case, prosecutors presented 29 witnesses, including lab employees, patients, doctors, and investors. It was really interesting hearing from investors because it was one voice that we'd heard less of over the years. And so we really got to get inside the pitches that were given to them and their internal thinking and and what led them to give all this money. You know, they really said Elizabeth Holmes pitched this company as, you know, being well on its way to achieving this technology that they set out to achieve, which was using just a few drops of blood from a finger prick. Well, it's wonderful to speak with you all. And it's wonderful to, to be in a place in which we can 
uh, begin to talk about this. Is, the jury wasn't just told about these pitches. They got to hear them, too. There was an investor who took the stand named Brian Tolbert, and he had something really interesting, which is that at one point, Elizabeth Holmes was doing a call with investors, and he recorded it, and he said he did it so he could take notes better. That could, in fact, make it possible to get rid of lobotomy or the big tubes of blood that are drawn from the arm in its entirety. And We had this recording, and so we heard her make... You know, many of these kind of promises that, that became themes in the trial, we heard her say that Theranos had the ability to run any combination of lab tests from a finger prick. Do any lab test that is run in a traditional lab from a micro sample or these tiny droplets that we take uh, now from the finger. She talked a lot about the military. She said Theranos was doing work in the Middle East and Afghanistan. She also had this whole thing she said about how the blood from Theranos was fresh, and because uh, the sample is fresh and it's not, you know, a big series of tubes of blood that are sitting on a counter uh, and exposed to temperature, uh, we don't suffer the rates of decay of key analytes that happen uh, when you ship samples off to a central lab. And, and we heard many times over trial that... Theranos very much had a central lab, and they actually would take blood samples in Arizona and ship them back to California to be tested. So just things like that that jurors had heard were not true, they then heard Elizabeth Holmes saying to these investors, which was really powerful. And for the investors who testified, how were they reflecting on what had happened to them? One investor who was a man from Texas who kind of invested a million dollars of his personal money, he was incredibly angry, and his time on the stand was really one of the more colorful couple days we've had in the whole trial, he was just visibly annoyed by the whole thing, was constantly saying how they duped him and just throwing out punches left, right, and center. And so we and the jurors got a snippet of how angry some people could be after losing money in this way. Prosecutors also called several scientists to the stand, including a former Pfizer scientist who testified that Theranos had used the Pfizer logo without the company's permission. And it looks to be a report that Pfizer produced validating Theranos' technology. And Elizabeth Holmes sent this to all kinds of people. But what's emerged is that it was actually a report that Theranos itself wrote about a little study that they'd done with Pfizer and that they threw Pfizer's logo on top to make it look, you know, kind of more legitimate. But we had a former Pfizer scientist take the stand who literally said, you know, we did not give them permission to do this. We would not have given them permission to use our logo. And in fact... It was not something we wanted to work with, and it, you know, it really didn't have much promise. After 11 weeks, the government rested its case. They'd presented an image of Holmes as a CEO who had repeatedly fabricated the success of her technology. And then it was the defense's turn. When they started calling witnesses, it didn't seem very likely that Holmes herself would testify. And then basically it's 3 p.m. on Friday, and court lets out at four every day, and we'd been there since Monday. It had just been a you know grueling long week for the reporters and and for everyone in court, I think. And then her lawyer stands up and says the defense calls Elizabeth Holmes. And right away she walks up, she sits down, she spells her name, and then she began her testimony. The testimony of Elizabeth Holmes is next. This episode is brought to you by C3AI. 
C3 Generative AI enables rapid access to secure, traceable, hallucination-free insights from enterprise systems, all while using any LLM, helping enterprises turn the invisible into the obvious. Learn more at c3.ai. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another stunning development in a case we've been closely following in just the last hour. Theranos' trial is heating up. After three months, the prosecution rested its case today. And this afternoon, the defense made a huge splash, calling Elizabeth Holmes to the stand. It was one of the most surprising and dramatic moments of an already spectacular trial. So take me to the moment that Elizabeth Holmes walks onto the stand. Yeah, I feel like that first day in particular, we got a real sense of Elizabeth Holmes as the pitch master that she was for so many years. You know, she walked up, sat down very confidently, hair kind of in loose curls, framing her face in um, kind of business attire. And she, you know, the first kind of hour of questioning, which is all we got that first day, was really talking about her very early days of founding the company and what she was setting out to do. And so she was really giving kind of all these lofty promises about changing healthcare that she'd given so many years ago and repeating them in this strong, confident voice. So by this point, you have sat through weeks of testimony that's tried to portray Elizabeth Holmes as somebody who intentionally misled investors. What's her defense against all this? At the root of it was that she believed in the technology and and that she was being told by employees and through customer reviews and different things that the technology was working. And so they're trying to show, hey, she wasn't intentionally lying to anyone because she still thought things were on track. Holmes also addressed specific allegations raised by the government, including the Pfizer letter, which she admitted she modified herself. She said she did this not because she intended to deceive, but because she felt the logo was appropriate, as the letter described work Theranos had done with Pfizer. But Sarah says the most surprising part of Holmes' defense was about a man named Sonny Balwani. Sonny Balwani was her number two executive at Theranos. And what most people didn't know for years is that they were also in a personal relationship. They met when she was 18. He's about two decades her senior. They met on a trip to China. And then they reconnected years later. And they were personally dating. And then he joined her at the company at some point of time and and worked there for many years. Balwani controlled a lot of operations at Theranos, including overseeing the labs. But the accusations Holmes made against him had very little to do with blood tests. A real bombshell that came out in court is that she has now accused him of emotional and sexual abuse and basically painted a picture of their relationship as being very dark. You know, she talked about basically being forced to have sex when she didn't want to and that that was something he did. You know, she says he controlled everything about how she ate, how she lived her life. Um, He gave her kind of business advice because he said that she was too little girlish and that she would never succeed in business and that she needed to basically change who she was. You know, at one point she said she was told, you know, I needed to kill the person that I was to become what he would call a new Elizabeth. Balwani has denied all the abuse allegations. He's also been charged with fraud relating to Theranos and is due to stand trial next year. He's pleaded not guilty. 
One piece of evidence the defense put forward to support the claim that Balwani was controlling her was a handwritten daily schedule, which Holmes said Balwani told her to create. She said he wanted her to improve herself. The note was written on a piece of paper from a hotel in Singapore and listed out Holmes's daily schedule. It began, quote, 4 a.m., rise and thank God. Most things are not logical. 4 to 4.15, wash face, change. 4.15 to 4.45, meditate, clear mind. And it goes on from there. And then it lists her exact meals that she plans to eat. Lunch is salad with tofu and tabbouleh. Dinner is broccoli with quinoa. And it even lists the dressing that was going on that. But then the more interesting part even is below, there's basically a list of um, kind of mantras you could say. Things like, all about business. I am not impulsive. I do not react. I am always proactive. I know the outcome of every encounter. I do not hesitate. My hands are always in my pockets or gesturing. I am fully present. Interesting. Sort of like a list of daily affirmations. Yeah. What she was trying to get across is, you know, Basically, these were things I was told to do and that I must do and that were drilled into me. Why does her defense think that Elizabeth Holmes's relationship with Sonny Balwani is relevant? It's a complicated question because she's really said somewhat conflicting things in court. She's said that she's very much in charge of her company and that Balwani didn't control how she spoke to investors and journalists and business partners But at the same time, she said that he controlled everything about her in her personal life and and how she comported herself. What we think they're trying to do is basically create doubt in jurors' minds that she would be in the state of mind to be able to intentionally commit fraud given this abusive relationship that was weighing on her. Because they're not directly saying that it was actually Sonny Balwani who was doing all these things. No, they really haven't gone that far. And in fact, her own lawyer, in his questioning, went through the series of questions with her after she laid out all the abuse where he said, you know, basically, to be clear, you're not saying Sonny Balwani dictated what you said to investors. No. You're not saying he controlled what you said to business partners like Walgreens. No. So she is very explicitly, you know, not trying to directly blame him, but then is at the same time somehow blaming him. So it's been a little hard to parse. The prosecution decided to challenge this line of defense by presenting the court with text messages between Balwani and Holmes, which they argued showed that the relationship was loving. In one text exchange, for example, Balwani told Holmes, quote, You are God's tigress and warrior. You are extraordinary. She responded, Coming from my tiger means the whole universe to me. I love you. Prosecutors asked Holmes to read some of the messages out loud which um, lawyers say is a risky thing to do because you never want to take control away from what you're doing. And, you know, when you have someone else read something, you don't know how that's going to go. And ultimately, it didn't go great for the government, I don't think, because Elizabeth Holmes started crying, you know, while reading some of these messages that the government then said, wouldn't you say, you know, this is an example of Mr. Balwani being loving to you? And her response was, this is a time when I was asking him permission to see my friends. And it really kind of turned back on them where she then said, I had to ask him permission to go see people. And that isn't what the government was looking to get out of that. Holmes became emotional several times during her testimony, including when she said that one reason she dropped out of Stanford University was because she was sexually assaulted there. Today, Holmes wrapped up her time on the stand and the defense rested. One of the last things her attorney asked her was whether she ever tried to mislead investors. Never, she said. 
So Elizabeth Holmes's decision to testify in her own trial was obviously a very risky and bold move. How do you think it will ultimately impact the jury and and the outcome of this case? Yeah, so I do feel like it has the potential to basically be the one factor that sways the whole trial. You know, the government brought these 29 witnesses and presented all kinds of things. But ultimately, I think the jurors are now going to consider whether or not they believe Elizabeth Holmes and believe her testimony. And I think the abuse allegations, you know, really created a whole twist in things. And so I think her testimony is going to be an incredibly pivotal part of the jury's deliberations. What's at stake for Elizabeth Holmes? A lot. I mean, her entire future. So she is a new mother who had a baby over the summer with her partner, Billy Evans, um, who's someone she started dating as Theranos was going out of business. And so, you know, they have this child and and a potential future. But if she's convicted, uh, she could face, um, you know, many years in prison. Each wire fraud count has a maximum sentence of 20 years. Sentencing is complicated. Uh, You know, there's a lot of factors that go into it, but we're talking potentially sizable um, sentencing. And um, I know that you can't predict the future, but do you think she will be found guilty or innocent? So I'm not in the prediction business. Uh, you know, we're, we're paid not to have opinions <laughs> on these things. Um, but I'd say it's going to be really interesting to see what the jurors do. And they have, at this point, really a, a ton of evidence on both sides from the government and from Elizabeth Holmes. And they have to sift through all of it and figure out, you know, even if they decide Theranos was a poorly run company that wasn't doing what it promised, they have to decide if Elizabeth Holmes was intentionally lying to get money and intentionally lying to get patients to come in the door. And that's all that's going to matter. Today, the judge said the jury will likely begin deliberations later this month. That's all for today, Wednesday, December 8th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and the Wall Street Journal. Additional reporting in this episode by Heather Somerville. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.